Welcome, one and all. We are so glad you're listening. My name is Art Wright, and I am the theologian in residence for the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia. Today, I have with me uh, two guests, Jason and Dina Hobbs, and we're going to be talking about anxiety. And we know that anxiety is something that so many of us are wrestling with in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, for some of us, anxiety is something that we wrestle with in regular life, and then the pandemic has exacerbated it. And for some of us, uh, we are struggling to adapt to this this so-called new normal. Uh, we also, you know, I keep hearing about um, how pastors are struggling with the, you know, reinventing what it means to be church together and how they serve their congregations. And we also know that pastors are uh, supporting a lot of folks in their congregations that are struggling with mental health issues in the midst of the pandemic. So it seems like a timely topic for us to address today. Jason and Dina have co-authored a book that was just published. It is called When Anxiety Strikes, Help and Hope for Managing Your Storm by Kriegel Publications. And Jason and Dina, the publication date is September 2020. So it is hot off the presses, right? <laughs> uh, uh, absolutely yeah. hot off the presses. Yeah. Uh, and, and they sent me a copy uh, for our listeners and I've skimmed through it and it's fantastic. Uh, and so we're going to be talking about the book, but also um, talking about ways in which we can manage anxiety for ourselves and also support congregations as, as we continue to navigate uh, these challenging times. So Jason and Dina, I wonder if you can introduce yourselves uh, a little bit. You know, what is your background? Why did you end up writing this book? Uh, what, you know, where did the book come from in, inside you guys? Well, it's, I, it's interesting that we're doing this podcast targeted toward folks in Virginia because Virginia is where our story started with us. Right. Um, so I was a student at Baptist Theological Seminary at Richmond and uh, finished an MDiv there in 99 and also over at Virginia Commonwealth University where I completed a Master of Social Work. Um, and gosh, I guess, Dina, why don't you tell a little bit of yours and then we'll... Okay. Yeah. I was, while Jason was at BTSR, I was a student at um, then Union Theological Seminary, now Union Presbyterian, right across the street. And um, I had always been a type A, high-strung, timid, nervous child, adolescent, um, young adult. Um, and in my last year of seminary, a union offers everyone a trip to go on a uh, travel abroad. You can either go to Central America or... Um, Israel or Africa, and I chose a trip to Africa. Now, as a part of our trip, we had to take anti-malarial drugs because, of course, Ghana uh, was rife with malaria. Now, um, we didn't know it at that time, but the drug we were taking, Larium, has some pretty serious side effects for about 20% of the population, and I turned out to be one of those 20%. So at the tail end of the trip, and certainly after we got back from Ghana, I started developing um, panic disorder. I started having some pretty nasty panic attacks and uh, was not sure of what was happening. I just knew something was wrong and that I felt funny. And one night I had a panic attack that was bad enough and lasted long enough that we went to the ER. We were living on campus at the time there in Richmond. And um, yeah, and you, well, those of you who know that area know there's a hospital really close by. That's right. (laughs) So we, we shot off to the ER because, you know, you have this 20 something year old female that suddenly is presenting with stuff that feels like a heart attack uh-huh. in a way. 
And, you know, that, and one of the things about a panic attack is you really feel like you're dying. I mean, this, this system in our brains is sitting there going, this is a huge threat and you've got to go take care of it. And so, you know, all we need to do is run off to the ER. Yeah. Right. So they're checking my vitals and my heart rate was um, very accelerated for (laughs) what it should have been. Um, I had an echocardiogram, a meeting with a cardiologist, everything Um, physically inside me with my heart and lungs was fine. So eventually they gave me a large dose of Valium, (laughs) which brought that heart rate right down. Um, And then I was advised, you know, follow up with your general physician. And um, I think one of the blessings of that time or the ways that we were really lucky in that time is we were in seminary. And so we had so many resources, um, Mm. professors, the dean of students, people really um, held us in that time and made sure that I got to a therapist and that um, it was very good at dealing with with, uh, mental illnesses. That is not always true. If your doctor calls you a nervous Nelly or insults you or patronizes you in any way, find a new doctor. Your doctor should be aware and your doctor should be compassionate to the fact that you're having an illness that also involves your brain. Um, so I consider myself super lucky that we had so many good people and good resources at that time that I was able to get into therapy. Um, at that time I did require psychiatric treatment, uh-huh. um, antidepressants and, um, benzodiazepines. Not everybody does. A lot of people can manage with lifestyle changes and therapeutic support, but, um, my body chemistry was so changed by delirium. Um, I needed medical treatment. So, well, and and there's a way in which when that reaction gets started, I mean, you kind of have to calm that first before you can get some of the other interventions in place. So, um, yeah, that was very necessary at the time. I mean, for me, I had in some sense, the gift of being in a clinical class in my MSW program. Uh Um, And so, you know, we were working on diagnostics. So I, you know, had a copy of the manual sitting there going like, oh, well, here are the symptoms we need to be looking for. And this is the typical course of an anxiety disorder. And, and so that um, was, was an interesting sort of timing too on, on my side. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I did, I read the beginning of the book and this is sort of like the, this becomes sort of the genesis of the book is, uh, the ways in which you have had this personal experience of anxiety and recognize that uh, a lot of people need support and help. And um, uh, Jason, you are a therapist in your day job, right? And so you support people with mental health issues. And Dina, you are in campus ministry. And from my own experiences in campus ministry, I know that a lot of students, uh, I mean, college is especially a, a, a time for mental health struggles as they sort of navigate becoming their own people. Right. Uh, so you all are. Yeah. Yeah. We're definitely on the front lines <laughs> of giving care to people every day. J- Jason more so, but right. yeah, to some degree, both of us. Yeah. Well, I wonder if you can tell us, you know, for those of us listening at home, what, what is anxiety? Um, you know, what does anxiety feel like? Uh, how does it affect people? You know, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, might not know if what they're feeling is actually anxiety Mm -hmm. and how it manifests. 
Well, one of the things that people do notice, and I would say one of the things that, that we noticed first, were not, not even necessarily the worried thoughts as much as the physical manifestation hmm. of, of those thoughts. Hmm. So, you know, a lot of people will notice an increased heart rate. Um, we'll notice maybe some chest tightening, maybe even chest pain, changes in breathing. The breathing goes from being sort of like long and deep to, to really short and shallow. Um, maybe even pain in other areas of their body. So for a lot of people, they hold that, that tightness in their shoulders. Um, sometimes it ends up in the hips and in other areas. And, and all of that, I mean, I guess in a succinct way, all of these processes that are happening in your body are there because that that freeze and fight and flight system is going off in your brain Hmm. so something has triggered in in the areas of your brain your amygdala your sympathetic nervous system something has triggered these to to see a threat and to begin to react to that threat Hmm. and so all that stuff you know to to be really honest all of it's really functional in terms of, you know, if there were a tiger running at you, you want your heart rate to increase. You want your muscles to tighten. You want your breathing to get short and shallow so you get a lot of oxygen really quick so you can run right. away from whatever this threat is or you can be prepared to fight whatever the threat is. You know, our issue is we begin to have all these physical manifestations to a threat that is about something we can't control. Hmm. And we have no way to get away from. I mean, you think about the the time we're in right now in the pandemic, and and there's a sense in which, you know, I have absolutely, well, I won't say no control, but very little control. I can wear a mask, <laughs> you know. I can I can limit where I go and what I do, but but there's so much that we don't have control over, and it still feels like a threat, and our body and our brains still react as if that threat is there. And so in, in a real way, the, the physical manifestation is what people notice first when, when they have anxiety. I would say that's 100% true for me. A lot of times the worry creeps up. Um, mm. well, one, either you've always been anxious and you don't know anything different, so it just feels normal to you that you have um, increased negative thoughts, increased worried thoughts. But sometimes it just creeps up on you so you don't notice it hit you right away. Maybe the exception of that is if you have a traumatic um, incident happen to you and you go into PS, PTSD like really hard, really fast. For, for most folks, I think it creeps up. So, yeah, I mean, when my gut starts acting funny, that's when I'm like, oh. I must be getting anxious, you okay. know, anxiety is creeping up and I haven't noticed or my jaw starts clicking because I've been grinding my uh-huh. teeth again at night or my muscles and my neck start spasming very much. You know, when my, bo- I say my body tells the story, when my body starts talking to me, I have to listen and say, okay, what's going on in my life? What's going on in my heart? What's going on in my mind? Um, what are, what do we need to do to address this? So yeah, it, even diagnostically, I mean, one of the things that, that I often ask people when they come into the office is, you know, tell me about what's happening with you physically. And mm-hmm. and especially with children and adolescents, sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll ask them, I'll say, this is not real glamorous, but have you had any trouble going to the bathroom? Mm-hmm. Are you going to the bathroom a whole lot? I yeah. mean, there, there are ways in which those gastrointestinal mm-hmm. effects are real and physical and they're there. Mm-hmm. Or tell me about your sleep habits right right now. Right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which yeah. everyone seems to be struggling with, from what I hear. Yeah, yeah. you know, uh, 
I think probably two or three months into the pandemic, I started to have my wife said, I think you're anxious. Uh, and I was like, no, I think that, you know, I'm okay. I'm hanging in there. My, my experience was that I, I just thought this is the way that life always feels. And I had to have other people tell me, I think you need to, mm. to, to address some of these issues related to anxiety. Do you, is, is that common? Do you think that where some people just think this is the way life always feels and they have to have some outside source tell them, I think you're wrestling with anxiety or, or something? Yeah, sometimes we don't know what to call that. I, I had a, actually a professor in the School of Social Work one time give me the phrase that a, a fish doesn't know what to call water. Hmm. When it's what you swim in, when it's what you breathe, when it's all around you, sometimes it gets really tough to name that. Mm-hmm. And so to to sit in an office with someone else or to sit, you know, there with your pastor and say like, oh, you know, these are some of the things I'm experiencing, you know, until you have that outside objective view that says, oh, well, yeah, that's what that sounds like. Yeah. yeah. Um, it just feels like you're normal. And, and as you're as you're saying, are the kind of normal that creeps up on you in a way. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think that that's both like if you've always just been anxious, which for me, to some degree, that's true. But there are times where I get more anxious and I don't see it. And Jason's like, I'm a little worried about how over focused you are on this or I've noticed uh, X or Y. And maybe we should talk about that. So I think that's part of why it's so important to have supportive people in your life mm-hmm. that know you well and you're able to be honest with because they're able to be your safety net and you know they're on your side and they're able to help you um i know that's been really important for me yeah in the in the title you say it's the subtitle is help and hope for managing your storm did you did you choose that word storm deliberately i'm curious about uh, (laughs) There's a whole backstory to that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, so the working title for this book for a number of years was Calming the Storms. And we, um, when we originally wrote the book, that was its working title. And it was based off of the scripture where um, the disciples and Jesus are on the boat in the Sea of Galilee. Oh, wow. And the storm comes up. And the disciples are terrified and they think, you know, they're going to, to die in the storm. And they go down oh, to where Jesus is sleeping and we're like, hey, Jesus, you know, wake up. Do you not care that we're all about to perish in this storm? And one, Jesus calms the wind and the waves. And then two, he says, um, oh, get, help me get the quote right. Oh, um, I, why were you worried? essentially right you a little faith yeah yeah why were you worried yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. which we take we we address that was it chapter six this comes up in the book like we we address this story over a course of a number of days in an attempt to address it in a way that's much more with grace with grace sometimes sometimes we hear that statement and we think oh my gosh you know either i don't have enough faith or i'm bad i'm wrong right. or having these feelings or, or worries. jesus is mad at me yeah yeah but we, we but should there was be a, we shouldn't be ahead. people of faith right we shouldn't you know we shouldn't yeah. be anxious you know if, oh yeah the whole faith over fear thing oh my god <laughs> <laughs> you know uh Every time well, an angel appears in scripture, you know, the first thing they say is something like, don't be afraid. 
but the you know the greek probably uh suggests more like stop being afraid assuming that they are afraid and that's the appropriate response yeah Yeah, well i absolutely and the appropriate response to being on a boat in the middle of a large storm would be for (laughs) for your breathing to get short and shallow your heart rate to increase your stomach's going to feel kind of funny you're going to muscle tighten i mean this is this is a normal body physical response yeah because you might be swimming soon (laughs) exactly (laughs) exactly Exactly. for your very life yeah well um and so there really is a way that you know in and this is one of the things that we really want to emphasize in the book as well is is having a grace filled response Hmm. to that um and so you know we really do try and hear those words of jesus as words of grace saying almost the image that I have in my mind is one where, you know, maybe your child got separated from you. They're a little scared. Maybe it's at the grocery store or wherever. And so the kid's scared and they're having a normal response to feeling abandoned. But what you do when we're our best parenting self is we pick up that kid, Mm. we hold them, we pat them, we get them kind of calmed and soothed and we let them know like, Oh baby, why were you scared? You know, I was here. Or I will always be here. Yeah. 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 I'll always be here for you. And, and so there's a way in which, you know, really try and hear those words through that lens as well. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think Jesus is trying to point the finger and go, Hey, y'all are all just screwing up. And you know, right. <laughs> it, it's more that sort of gracious. Oh, why were you afraid? Almost a sense of curiosity. Right. Well, there, there can be a lot of shame around anxiety and I, you know, I know depression is also closely linked, at least in my understanding to the uh, anxiety and depression are related. And there's a lot of shame around these in churches and congregations to the point where, you know, sometimes it's surprising when you hear someone's wrestling with it. One, one of the things that my wife and I try to do is, is try to be a little bit more open in terms of, yes, both of us has, have wrestled with anxiety, both of us have been in relationships with therapists uh, at various points in our lives. And it's a a healthy thing for most of us to do. Right. And, and shame is something that you see people wrestle with in connection to anxiety. Oh, um, in my personal story. So I pastored United Methodist churches for six years Uh uh, after seminary and before we had our children. And, um, after, after my initial episode with anxiety, I got much better, but, um, the church I served went through a particularly challenging, uh, time where there was a lot of infighting in the church and that triggered my anxiety to come back. And I began having panic attacks on Sunday mornings in the pulpit, which is not (laughs) what you want to happen. (laughs) Great timing. It's just not what you want to happen. And I was an associate pastor. Um, that preached occasionally, but also led worship every Sunday. And my senior pastor was not a very gracious person. Mm. Um, I never told him I was having panic attacks with him (laughs) in worship on Sunday morning. And when I started therapy, I drove from Savannah to Hilton Head, which is uh, like a 50 minute drive because I didn't want anyone to see me in a therapist office Mm. in Savannah because I was still so bound by shame. Hmm. that I was a pastor Hmm. who should have, and there's this uh, 
image or assumption that we should have it together, right? Mm -hmm. That we should have it worked out. And because the Bible says so much trust and, you know, pray without ceasing and give everything to God. You know, I felt so much shame that I was struggling with this and I didn't want anyone to know because I thought that it would judge me or that I would be punished uh, even professionally professionally yeah. uh-huh. by my superiors so I totally kept that a secret from all but a few people in that church and looking back now I regret that decision I wish I had been um, more open with more people um, maybe it was true at that time that I like sometimes it is true that your superiors will punish you and that's really really sad that yeah. that, that, that that's still true in our world um so you do have to be careful who you share your story with and how you share your story. Cause some people, you know, are very brave and very open and there is blowback, but I wish I had been more honest with more people. Cause I think that would have created opportunities for support and healing for me, but that would have also opened doors for other people to share their stories. Like if I had shared, I'm struggling, they could say, Hey, I'm struggling too. But, um, yeah, at that time I was not in that place. Now I am, but I'm also in a position where I, I, I don't have that same. Like my uh, superiors are much more gracious, right? And I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, you know, we we can all talk openly about uh, where we are and what's going on in our lives, and I'm very thankful for that. I'm I'm a big Brene Brown fan and uh, yeah. are y'all yes. <laughs> she talks about vulnerability and the way that vulnerability creates pathways to healing and, and helps uh, uh, get rid of shame. And I think that that's, that's certainly in play here. Uh, Jason and Dina, you all say um, in the intro that anxiety is and is not a spiritual problem. I wonder if you can unpack that a little bit for us as we sort of think about the relationship between anxiety and faith. Anxiety is and is not a spiritual problem. Well, I I think part of that goes to, in some sense, thinking again about how we talk about sin um, and thinking about that more as brokenness and need of healing Mm -hmm. And not necessarily, you know, just sins of commission. I mean, you know, some of us are raised in traditions where, you know, it was okay if I cursed or I did. It was all about the stuff that we did. Right. We should be embarrassed about or, you know, God was mad at and was going to smite us over. Um, And so it really is goes to reinterpreting that idea. Hmm. That that sin is much more about missing the mark. It's about hmm. this sense in which, okay, this this world and and we ourselves are maybe not what we wish for it to be, or that maybe what God would wish for us. But but how do we move toward healing in that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things I've appreciated from my Presbyterian and Lutheran friends is this idea that we are all fallen and we are all. Um, I mean, Calvin will say depraved and that's a little <laughs> strong, but when you can really come to terms with your mortality and your limits and your dark side, cause we all have that shadow side and your finitude and your brokenness and accept God's grace in the midst of that, that you don't have to be ashamed of the brokenness and you don't have to be ashamed of the limits and you don't have to be ashamed of your shadow side but that's a part of who we are as human beings. And God comes into that with grace and love. That's a beautiful experience when, you know, you don't have to get it all right anymore. Ash Wednesday is my favorite because you Mm. get to say, yep, 
I'm human. I'm human. And I think having an anxiety is an intense experience of being human Hmm. and needing God's grace. Hmm. Um, Where it can get you into trouble is when you don't want to accept help or grace or be human. Um, When we want to be in control or we don't want to trust. So that can be, that can be some of the ground that we can work on spiritually. Like how can we grow in our trust of others and God, or how can we let go of some of our need for control? It It is one of the sticky wickets with anxiety. I mean, anxiety, you know, it, at times is born out of that desire for control because mm-hmm. things feel chaotic. Oh yeah. And so That's I good. want order. I want structure. And, and sometimes you even get some of those like obsessive compulsive disorder mm-hmm. kind of traits because it's like, okay, well, I can't, order this over here. So I've got to order all this. And, you know, and you're making everybody else around you a little bit frustrated and stressed with you because you're trying to order them too. Um, but there's this tightening. I mean, even when I talk about that physical tightening that happens, I mean, that's a mental tightening too, where we start to see things in these sort of either or categories and, you know, either I'm all good or all bad. Right. And we have this God that says, I love all of you. Mm-hmm. absolutely every bit of you mm-hmm. and and that you know to to release some of that control and and to live into that kind of grace or that kind of forgiveness um that is healing mm. um, and that and that is i think you know to kind of dovetail with some of the Brene brown material um that's a way of openness uh-huh and and not a way of you know tight fist and and clenched teeth and and just holding on for dear life. Yeah, we really do have to come to God with openness in our lives, right? We can't. Yeah, yeah, and surrendering of control. Yeah, sometimes we sometimes we have those control issues and trust issues because of things that have happened to us in our early years, oh, and I think that's where therapy is useful. You know, if had you've a, had someone betray your trust, or if you've had a a real loss of control. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean, one of the things where, so, you know, where therapy can be quite useful is going back and sort of understanding some of the patterns of thought that, that mm-hmm. got us into that place. Now, and I like to talk about them as patterns because often it's not something that you've chosen. Uh-huh. It's like, you didn't decide one day, like, Oh, well, I think I'm going to think in this particular way that it makes me really hard to deal with, with my spouse or with my congregation, or, you know, it's, it's going back and understanding, Oh, well, these are some old family patterns, or these are patterns in our thinking that we've kind of gotten a rut with. Um, you know, I, I know there are probably still some areas of Virginia that are very rural. I grew up in a rural area. And so when we talk about ruts, like I remember dirt roads and, and the way that like, you know, when it rained and, and trucks or cars are going through there, those ruts would form and you could, could get stuck in them. Mm-hmm. And, and, but that's how our patterns of thought work as well is, you know, because folks have gone down that path over and over and over again, that that pattern of thinking is like that rut that you get stuck in. And so then it does help to have somebody else, you know, help you feel, fill that in a bit and, and sort of learn some different, different ways to think and different ways to behave. Mm-hmm. And during the pandemic, like anytime I know I'm in stress, I will revert back to those. Even if I've done therapeutic work, I will still revert back to those uh, patterns of thinking because that's what we do when we're in stress mode, right? Mm-hmm. We, we go back to those old patterns of, you know, I'm used to thinking, what if I'm used to thinking catastrophically, 
I'm worst used to case it. scenario. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I could tell you every worst case scenario, every moment I'm in. Oh, one day I'm going to write a really great fiction novel though, because of that skill. <laughs> could probably be a yes. whole series. <laughs> yes. Because we need more dystopian literature. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, so the, you know, I was looking through the book and 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 reading some of the chapters. The basic it's it's divided into eight chapters, and then it's subdivided into days, right? So that there's sort of like uh, each chapter is basically a week long that you could read a chat uh, a, a, a subsection each day. Uh, and then there's different chapter titles: breath, body, mind, change, spirit, community. I'm wondering if you can unpack a in in some senses the significance of these chapter titles for guiding us through the the book. Originally, when we started doing this, I mean, I had been teaching a number of um, kind of eight week courses on mindfulness in the community. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so when Dina and I kind of came up with the idea for the book, we, we structured it in a similar way so that we could offer it as an eight week course. And so, you know, what we have in front of us now as a book that's where it got its start. And, and that's part of where the structure is as well. Now, for me as a therapist and, and you know, for Dina as someone that has anxiety, so we knew that starting in the breath, mm. starting in the body, like getting these basic skills that help soothe physically would enable us to begin to talk about things of the mind or things of the spirit. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, as like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I mean, we'll reference that real briefly that, you know, until you get some of those lower order needs taken care of, it is tough to do that other work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for, for those of you who have small children, you know, right, we in our house, we talk about the hungry, angry, lonely and tired, or we call it being hangry. <laughs> you know, that, that the angry comes out because, you know, and, and you think about it at a very basic level for our bodies if we feel hungry, that becomes a survival need. Mm-hmm. And, and granted, we all have enough food and we're not starving. And so we're not in that kind of position, but people act differently when their blood sugar is low. Mm-hmm. And so there's a way in which for us to attend to the things of the body right in those first couple of chapters was super important. Mm-hmm. But, the, but three weeks, let's be clear. They address much more than hungry and, you know, it goes much deeper than that. Sure. I, don't, I don't want people to think it's that basic. Right. There's, a, there's a lot going on in the first three chapters about taking care of your body and soothing your body and starting to feel better enough that you can go deeper and say, okay, let's start addressing those patterns of thinking. Because yeah. once you can start changing the habitual negative patterns of thinking and figure out what are your, um, we talk about, your um like main negative thoughts and you there's one of the exercises that you figure out what are your what are your go-tos like we all have our favorites we all have our favorite negative thoughts and when you notice that pattern happening over and over again the first thing you do is you notice it and then you notice it and pause and question it like is that really true and then you can notice it pause and rewrite it and and in the book we actually use scripture because we have this rich Christian tradition. And that's one of the reasons we wrote the book too, is there's a lot of books on, you know, managing anxiety, but not all of them use all the resources we have from our, our Christian spiritual disciplines. And there's so much 
scripture that not just, you know, give everything to God in prayer, but just beautiful, deep, life-giving scriptures that when I say to myself, oh, you're so stupid, you know, why did you do that? No, you are a beloved child of God. Mm. And, and that's what I say to myself when I go down that negative pattern of thinking. And when you can begin to change your thoughts like that, oh, it's a whole new world. It's a whole new world. Yeah, one, yeah. one of the passages that we um, bring up in a couple of different places is um, Elijah sitting under the broom tree in 1 Kings 19. Uh-huh. Um, and that's, that's one of those passages that, I mean, in some sense, it speaks a lot about the kind of um, exhaustion that happens after a big event because, you know, the prophets of Baal have just been defeated. And, but now Jezebel is saying, Hey, I'm going to have your head. And so <laughs> Elijah runs away, which, you know, is an appropriate response, but he sits underneath the broom tree and essentially says, I want to die. Like I'm done. And so the angel comes and and I'm, my favorite piece is that the angel comes twice. Mm-hmm. Like there's the first time where there's the bread there's something to drink. I mean, in some sense, you know, for us thinking through our Christian lens, you know, we're seeing that as Eucharistic, but, but, you know, there's a way in which the angel comes once, brings these gifts. And then Elijah still says, nah, I'm done. <laughs> and until that angel comes again. Hmm. And the other gift in that past for community. And that's part of what that quiet, that still small voice, whatever your translation is, but then it goes to this place where it's like, oh, but there are others. And that's, you know, and that's why, you know, part of our um, transition in the book is is starting very, very elemental in a way with body, but then eventually moving towards these other bodies in community. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another reason why we wrote it as a small group study, because knowing that there are other people that struggle with the same thing you do mm-hmm. and finding community and support in that is so rich and is such a gift and can be so life-giving. When we taught the class, I mean, those were just beautiful moments where we saw these groups of strangers come together and lift each other up. Um, so if, if churches want to use that as a small group resource, um, you have to watch not letting it go into therapy uh-huh. or group therapy. Right. So listen with compassion, but also have boundaries. Um, we're actually doing a train the trainer event. Um, helping. Well, yeah, we have a couple of those, um, on Eventbrite right now that are going to be online. So it's not anything we're doing in person. Uh-huh. Um, but we also have like a PDF Leader's, leader's guide, guide. Um, but you can you know either find those on Eventbrite or find us on Facebook. We'll be glad to point you in that direction. Right. Um, but we're trying to offer that in a way to help people if if people do wish to use this in a in a small group or in some kind of church setting to to think of some good ways to do that mm-hmm. and ways to help manage those boundaries. Yeah, yeah but we also know people who are just doing it with like a friend or a spouse or a, uh-huh. a family member, and and that's beautiful too. Because then, you know, you have a buddy to to talk through it with. Yeah, and it helps, again, you know, bring down some of the shame when you're walking with someone through this, I would imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I love that it could, it it seems to me like it would be a great small group uh, thing in a congregation. And, you you know, you just offer that sort of caution that it doesn't devolve into therapy. We, We were talking for podcast listeners a little bit before we hit the record button about um, sort of how to navigate um, as a, a pastor 
you know, if someone's having a mental health issue in your congregation, can you say a little bit more about that? You know, pastors aren't, pastors are certainly trained in um, pastoral care techniques, but they're not therapists. Um, How would you advise a pastor uh, that was helping someone with the mental health issues? Well, I I think the first thing is to know your resources, Um, know your own limits, but then know the resources to which you can refer. Um, And so I, you know, I know whenever I was setting up my practice, I mean, one of the things that I did is I met with local clergy to kind of say, hey, here's who I am, you know, here's my background, here's what you can expect if you refer someone to me. Right. Um, And, but as clergy, you can certainly reach out to Mm -hmm. clinicians in your area or if you have somebody that has been seeing someone for a while to say, hey, what's your experience of them? Is this somebody that, you know, you would feel comfortable me, with me referring to them? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's a good good way to bolster your resources. Mm-hmm. When I was in parish ministry, my um, my motto was three sessions and then refer. Maybe uh-huh. not even three. If on the first session, you, you know that they need um professional help, but I always kept cards in my drawer for, um, someone who saw adults and someone who saw teenagers and children. I think that's important to say too. Not everyone sees teenagers and children, but there's such a a, a rash of mental health issues with teenagers and, and even younger, um, children than teenagers these days that you, it would be important to know those resources as well. But um, yeah, certainly you're on the front lines. And if you can make yourself uh, available and accessible, know that you're a safe person to talk to and you're not going to shame someone right. for, for struggling with mental health. And some of that is sharing your own, like, hey, you know, I'm taking a, a Sabbath month or, you know, this is my week off. You know, you can frame your own self-care in a way that helps people know that it's okay for them to struggle and need self-care. Um, or even, you know, I, I know people make fun of the Facebook break, but you know, there's <laughs> something to saying, Hey, you know, I need a week off and, 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 and that's okay from social or, you know, from whatever, however it is, you set your own boundaries in life. I think when people see you respecting your need to take care of yourself, it inspires them to say, Hey, I can go to this person to find out how to take care of myself too. The, the other thing that I would encourage pastors, um, to potentially look into. If you go to the uh, National Alliance for Mental Illness, um, they actually have a spiritual resources page. And a lot of that, I mean, that group, NAMI, um, does a lot with busting stigma is mm-hmm. how they like to talk about it. And so when when we are talking about shame associated with mental illness, I mean, that's, you know, their, their language is busting stigma on that. And a lot of that does have to do with how, as clergy, we signal either our openness or our clo- or being closed to talking about mental illness. And so when we use words like, oh, well, that was so crazy, or they're off the chain, or whatever kind of, you know, uh-huh. borderline slurs we use for that, um, that signals to people that, oh, well, maybe this is something that is, you know, going to be derided or made fun of. or uh-huh. and, and so there's, there's a way in which the language that's used by clergy, you know, whether that be in the context of a sermon or in a one-on-one interaction, um, that's, that's heard very much and can be life-giving or or can signal a kind of openness. That's, that's why to go back to Dina's story earlier, why she didn't feel safe talking to her senior pastor about 
Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> you get those subtle cues yeah. that this is not the place for that. Or Absolutely. So if you are a pastor listening in or, or someone who is a caregiver, Jason and Dina, what, what word would you might suggest to them as far as how they care for themselves right now, especially in the midst of the pandemic, which is, uh, you know, a time of acute anxiety for a lot of us? I would say there is not any, uh, there is no such thing as too much self-care right now. Hmm. As your stress level has increased exponentially, so your self-care needs to increase exponentially. And that's taking care of your physical body, um, making sure you're getting enough good food, good sleep, movement, exercise, breathe, you know, doing deep breathing exercises, meditation, um, taking care of your mental health, talking to a therapist, talking to friends, having fun, if at all that exists in 2020. I think it does. I think you can carve out ways to have fun and taking care of your spiritual health um, and definitely having community. So there's no, there's no such thing as too much self-care right now. Give yourself all the grace in the world because um, it's a really hard time and it's a marathon, not a sprint. And we, and we, we got to keep going for a while longer. What would you say, Jace? Yeah. I mean, I would just emphasize those same things. I mean, remembering um, that your physical self needs a lot of care too. I mean, this, even though there are ways in which um, potentially the job of clergy is not as physically demanding, if you're not having to go into your church or not having to do as much um, in the presence of that physical building, all of all of what pandemic church has meant in terms of the technological challenges that a lot of folks have faced, um, it's stressful. Yeah. And that that mental stress, and I hate to make that dichotomy that like, you know, mental versus physical, but there's a way in which that mental stress is affecting all of us physically. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to show up in, in, you know, in terms of increased heart rate, tightening. I mean, there are other symptoms that are going to start showing up for us now. Oh, I know what I would say, too. Make sure you're watching your boundaries. Um, I know when I started working from home, it was easy to work 24 hours a day because I was working, you know, in my home. Make sure, you know, you have a time of day where um, whatever you need to do to your phone to, you know, not get. Uh, text or whatever you need to do to, to set a time where I'm done for the day. Um, I'm done for this week, you know, make sure that you have days off still make sure that you take a vacation still, even if you can't travel for vacation and protect that time, just, you know, make sure you're giving yourself enough rest and keeping your boundaries. There there's, there's going to be so much need right now. I don't think we can meet all of it. So at some point each day, you just have to call yourself done. I know I've experienced that with yeah. just my little bit of campus ministry, which is not the same as being a pastor of, of a large church. At some point, you just have to be done. Right. Yeah, it's been, I've experienced this myself and heard this from a number of people. Like our home space is now also our workspace for so many of us. And there's there's no yes. clear, obvious boundaries. You know, five o'clock doesn't come and we leave the office Uh or whatever right. it does take a lot more um, deliberate uh, decision making in terms of creating those boundaries. Are there are there ways that congregations and pastors should be thinking uh, about supporting people with mental mental health challenges now? I think one of 
one piece and it's been it's been so hard in this pandemic time is there's been all this need and very valid need to separate um to limit large gatherings but there's a way in which some of our folks with mental illness um especially when you get toward the more severe end of that spectrum they're already pretty isolated and so, you know, for some of them, the only time that they were getting together with other people might have been the small group or the church meal or, you yeah. know, at some time when they were coming to worship services. And so I think one of the things that's been more challenging is needing to reach out and, and, and to connect. And for some people, especially our older adults, I mean, like we're talking over Zoom today, but you know, there are a lot of older adults that have a tremendously hard time navigating this stuff. And, and so it's like, how do we do that? Uh, how do we continue to reach out to them and include them in community? I would second that, especially if someone that you're used to seeing communication with in some way falls off the radar, that would be a definite signal to call them, text them. Um, hey, are you okay? I haven't heard from you recently. Mm-hmm. Because when people struggle um, more deeply, they tend to isolate and withdraw. So um, if someone falls off your radar that you're used to seeing, definitely reach out and check on them. But also just, yeah, all check on all your people for everyone. I mean, obviously the pastor can't do all that right? Um, solely, right. but, you know, just have everybody check on all your people. And, and that may be a time to, you know, bolster. I mean, depending on what your, how your congregation is structured and how pastoral care is structured within the congregation, but to have that sort of group come together via Zoom and start to sort of divvy folks out and say, hey, let's make sure we're all remaining connected. Can you check on these five people? Can mm-hmm. you make sure you check on these five? Yeah. And um, because, yes, that would be way too much for one person to do. Yeah. For the first three months of the pandemic, I think we got a phone call from our, we're Episcopalian now. So we have vestry Uh um, as our like leadership group. So our assigned vestry person um, called me once a week. It's like, y'all okay. (laughs) And we were, and sometimes we know we would talk for a while, but it was just nice to be checked on to know that they cared about us. Now they've stopped doing that. So yeah, I think I think that's the other thing that you know you notice as this keeps going on is we we are realizing more and more that this is a marathon, not a sprint. Right. And so some of the some of the things that we're putting in place, we have to make sure we can continue to sustain to make um, it sustainable. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Sure. What, yeah, pandemic fatigue has set in in so many ways, and we have no idea how long this is going to last. So you're right; we have to sort of settle in and figure out how we can have the endurance to make it, make it through this to the other side. And then we're not in crisis mode anymore. Yeah. I, I, for myself, I mean, I use, I use the analogy of running a lot. Um, I actually ran the Richmond marathon a couple of times. That's a wonderful race there. Um, But, you know, one of the things you recognize when you're doing a race like that is, you know, you watch your pace, especially at the beginning. Yeah. That if you start out too fast, it's like, Oh, I'm not going to be able to continue to maintain this pace and I'm only in, you know, my first couple of miles and I've got, you know, 24 more to go. Um, You really have to watch that. The temptation is always, I'm a runner too. The temptation is to start the race faster than you have trained because you see everyone. (laughs) It's exciting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You have, you know, all this adrenaline. Um, Well, and then the Uh other interesting thing is, 
you know, around and a marathon around mile 20 or so, you inevitably hit the wall. I uh, you know it and mm. expect it and you're tempted to quit and uh, it's hard. You have to push through. Yeah. Um, but then you have the crowd cheering for you as, as the person who cheers, <laughs> you know, at that point, you know, have the, you have the people that are clapping you in. Yeah. So I think that's real important for congregations yeah. um, this week. I was, uh, I had a little nudge to, to reach out to our, again, we're Episcopalians. We have priests. Um, I was around where he lives and grabbing lunch and I just had this little nudge. So I know he likes, um, sweets and I know he likes sparkling water. So when I was grabbing my lunch, I got him, um, some baklava and sparkling water and just dropped it on his porch. I didn't knock, you know, I didn't want to bug him. I felt a little bit like a stalker for dropping (laughs) it on his porch, but we have a pretty good relationship. So I just dropped it on his porch and texted and I said, you've just received a care package. Oh, that's um, great. You know, for congregations to just reach out to their pastors and say, hey, you know, good job. You know, I know this is hard and I appreciate you. I think that's important right now, too. Yeah. Even though, you know, even though you may not agree with everything, <laughs> because the decisions right now are so hard and so complicated. Um, but, yeah, just having compassion that it's a hard time. Yeah. Yeah. Pastors get pulled in a lot of different directions with a lot of different opinions and it's impossible to make everyone happy right now. Um, impossible. Yeah. yeah. It's, that's impossible in a good day. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> in a good year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We have done that a little bit with friends and uh, our, our second graders, teacher, you know, just sort of, words of encouragement and keep it up, hang in there, uh, porch, uh, drops, you know, get, get mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, it's important to, to keep encouraging one another right now. Yeah. And you know, that makes, I mean, that's the truism of altruism is that when you do something nice for someone else, you also feel better yourself. That's not necessarily the reason to do it, but it's a double win it's a mood boost. I think it's like actual scientific that you like boost your oxytocin when you you do an act of kindness like that. Well, uh, so a a couple more questions I want to ask before we, we run out of time. I'm wondering if, if there are practical strategies that you might share with people who are struggling with anxiety right now, like what are the first steps if someone is listening to this they're thinking, oh, I might be struggling with anxiety. You know, what What do I need to do? The first step is to talk to someone about that. I mean, if, if your clergy is the most um, open person, most accessible person, then start there. But, but also consider starting with your general practitioner. Um, a lot of them are willing to start medication if medication is needed. But your general practitioner can also help you evaluate if some of the physical symptoms you're experiencing could potentially be coming from somewhere else, too. Oh, thyroid, um, diabetes. Yeah, because there are, there are um, again, as a clinician who asks a lot about body stuff, too, um, we know that folks that have an overactive thyroid will sometimes present as being anxious. We know folks that have an underactive thyroid will present as having depressive symptoms. Um, diabetes certainly is connected to mood changes. A low vitamin D level is connected to depressive symptoms. Um, so all these things are things that your general practitioner can help you sort of sort through and evaluate. 
And then based on that evaluation, it may be like, oh, well, yeah, let's get connected with a therapist or let's get connected with a psychiatrist or maybe your general practitioner feels comfortable uh, prescribing if, if that's necessary. One of the things about anxiety in particular is that panic reaction can be so strong. And that's the one where it feels like, oh, my gosh, everything is closing in. I'm about to die. Heart rate going through the roof. There's a way in which trying to get that reaction itself calmed and soothed first is super important because the more places that you begin to have that reaction, the way your world begins to constrict Mm. because you begin to associate that panic attack with, you know, this place or that place, or I can no longer go to that particular grocery store because I had a panic attack there, but now it begins to generalize. Well, I can't go to any grocery store. Um, And so your general practitioner can help you sort of get some stuff on board. And that's where the benzodiazepines are often really useful is to get that reaction calmed down so that you can begin to do some of the other work of changing behavior and some of the other work of therapy. Not to ramble, but I wonder if this would be a really easier time to become agoraphobic because like we all are staying in our houses more. Uh So I would say, yeah, you want to watch that. Um, My top five would probably be give up caffeine or cut back on caffeine. Oh, um, because, because that definitely um, exacerbates anxiety. Watch your sugar. Um, you know, maybe cut back on the cinnamon rolls if, if you're dealing with anxiety <laughs> and eat more, you know, lean proteins and complex carbs because you won't have the spikes in your blood sugar, which aggravate things. Start walking um, every day for mm-hmm. a little bit. It doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to run a marathon. I am not a marathon runner, people. But if I take a 15 minute walk every day, I feel 50% better. Um breathing that we actually have a YouTube, uh, golly, what do you call that? (laughs) That would be a channel. Thank (laughs) you. I am not a technology person. I'm like, it's a page is a feed. We actually have a YouTube channel where we do some breathing exercises and it's all over YouTube. I mean, you don't have to watch ours, but you can, you can get all kinds of Uh, meditation and breathing exercises off of YouTube. Calm the app. Calm if Uh you're a phone app person. I find really useful. Headspace, people like that as well. Yeah, I was I was just going to say there's there's a lot of exercises that we reference in the book that do have to do with breathing and body and movement and and so yeah I mean the YouTube channel is there to sometimes illustrate some of those because it it may be easier to hear somebody walk you through that exercise uh-huh. um, than it is to read it on a page and trying to implement it right. But yeah, those are, those are going to be some of the first steps. But then um, you know it is going to be finding a supportive community. Um, and that is going to mean, you know, if, if you're somebody that's in a relationship, talk to that person about what's going on and hopefully get their support as well. Um, for them to educate themselves about anxiety is going to be super important too. I mean, I think it's one of the gifts that we had in our journey is that I was in school at the time and could understand anxiety from a whole different perspective than just, oh, you're just over-worrying. Right. Like to understand what was happening um, clinically instead of, you know, the effect it was having 
having on my spouse and having on us. And I love you and you're wonderful, but it's also really important for me to have girlfriends that understand mm-hmm. what I'm going through with anxiety. So, um, I would say, yeah, find a couple people that you can talk to. So when you're annoyed with the one person <laughs> that you may live, live with, you still have someone else that can listen and, and be supportive and be there. Cause also you don't want to drain your spouse. You know, sometimes I know I can be a black hole of neediness when I get super anxious. And so it's helpful to have friends that can come over and take a walk with me or watch a movie with me or, um, you know, help me also. So it's not just all on Jason's shoulders because that's too much for him to bear. Right. I love that. Those are great strategies. I'm, I'm wondering if you can each share something that you've learned or that surprised you in the course of writing this book. It reminds me, I, I, do you listen to make me smart with um, Kai and Molly? Do you know that podcast? I from don't, the marketplace no. folks? Oh my gosh. It reminds me of a question that they ask. It's, you know, what is something you thought you knew, but you were wrong about? Oh, interesting. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Which is just this sort of like, okay, let me turn this question a little bit. Um, I, I continue through this journey to just the connection between body and mind and spirit. Mm always I, I keep coming back to that over and over again and it's why sometimes I struggle even with this language about mental illness versus physical illness because in in tying all three of these together which I hope is something that we do well in the book um, that's that's been continually challenging and surprising and wonderful mm. the way that those are all woven together yeah I love that yeah. um, I'll say two things. The it was a little bit therapeutic for me because I continued to unravel the shame and become more deeply grateful for the support and the friendships I've had over the years that helped that, that has helped me um live as a person with anxiety. So letting go of shame, embracing the vulnerability in community. But also I think just you know, with our work with scripture. There are so many beautiful scriptures Mm -hmm. that speak to struggle and speak to anxiety and depression in a loving way, as opposed to a judgmental way. And why are we not preaching on that in the pulpit? Why are we not using Elijah under the broom tree or the disciples in the boat or all the other really poignant scriptures where people are suffering and struggling and God moves through that instead of just, you know, we, we have still this very judgmental relationship with struggle. So, you know, why are, why are we not preaching more about those scriptures that, that show grace in the midst of the struggle? So that's a call to action. Yeah. Oh, I think that's (laughs) on that people, you know, I, I even am thinking some of the like larger narratives of, scripture like exile uh where absolutely nation of people who are struggling with anxiety and diaspora living uh they're you know mm-hmm. they can no longer go to their temple where they're used to worshiping uh or wilderness yeah. journeying you know where they yes uh just aren't home uh and i, mm-hmm. you know, I those are scriptures that i keep coming back to during the pandemic but as you 
say that, it makes me think these are also people who are wrestling with anxiety. Uh, and I yeah. love this sort of called to reclaim scripture as a resource for anxiety instead of shame. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Awesome. Well, so that is the challenge then, uh, you know, pastors and uh, caregivers take care of yourselves, but then find ways to weave this into your sermons on Sundays. Well, yeah. Jason and Dina, this has been such a wonderful conversation. It has been uh, so, so rewarding to me to listen to. Um, and I know that folks listening in will find much of value here. Uh, one more time, the, the book that Jason and Dina Hobbs have just published is When Anxiety Strikes, Help and Hope for Managing Your Storm by Kriegel Publications 2020. So please, uh, folks, uh, would love for you to check that out as a resource for yourselves and for congregations uh, uh, now and in the future. Jason and Dina, thanks so much for your time. Uh, we'll, we'll look forward to being in touch. Thank Thank you you for having us. We really appreciate it. And podcast listeners, thanks so much for listening. God bless.